Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the second and final part of my end of season special in which I tell the stories of Linda Mann and Don Ashworth who were murdered in Narborough and Enderby, Leicestershire in 1983 and 1986. Last week in part one I explored the lives of Linda and Dawn while delving into their respective murders. I also discussed the first three years of what would eventually be a four-year hunt for justice, culminating with the wrongful arrest of an innocent man. Please go back and listen to part one first before continuing with this episode if you haven't already heard it. This week, I'll start by discussing a revolutionary discovery that changed history and led to the actual perpetrator's arrest and conviction, whilst also providing some background information about the person responsible for murdering Linda and Dawn. Before we get into it though, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know, for hundreds of years, European animals were regularly tried in court for their alleged misdeeds. Rodents and other pests were tried for damaging crops, as were locusts, serpents, weevils, rats, and even flies. Such practices ended in the 18th century. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. If you listen, you learn. If you talk, you don't. John Hurt. Last week I gave you five quickfire facts about Narbra, so this week here are your five quickfire facts about Enderby. Number one, archaeologists have found evidence of Iron Age, that's pre-Roman, settlers on the site of Enderby. Number two, From the 1st century AD to the 5th century, the Romans ruled Britain and they made a small cemetery at Enderby. Number three, after the Romans left, the Saxons invaded England and they slowly advanced inland. The Saxons built the first church in Enderby. Number four, in the 9th century, the Danes conquered Leicestershire and so many place names in the county are Danish. It's believed that Enderby was called 
Eindrithis Bai. The word Bai, B-Y, meant village, but I'm therefore saying that incorrectly. And finally, number five, despite its small size, Enderby had a water mill where grain was ground to flour for the villagers. At the time of the Doomsday Book in 1086, Enderby, or Endraby as it was called, probably had a population of less than 100. According to the 2021 census, Enderby's approximate population is 3,028. I want to quickly thank Rich Atkiss before getting into part two, as he's kindly reached out to me on the back of last week's episode to confirm a couple of things. Firstly, my pronunciation of Narborough is apparently perfect, which was a relief to hear. And secondly, during the episode, I mistakenly referred to lead investigator Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker as Detective Chief Superintendent David Barker. That's a typo error on my behalf. I correctly referred to him as Baker in a preview of the episode on Instagram, so I probably just hit an extra key while typing in my script and then called him Barker by mistake. Sorry about that. Thanks again, Rich, for pointing it out. I do appreciate it. Now, part one ended with a bit of a cliffhanger, didn't it? 17-year-old kitchen assistant Richard John Buckland was arrested in connection with the murder of Dawn Ashworth on August 8th, 1986, but was released three months later on November 21st. The first twist in this harrowing tale came on that day when it was revealed the police had arrested the wrong man. Buckland was innocent, and a revolutionary new test proved it. The statement made by officers after Buckland was cleared of his murder charge at Leicester County Magistrates Court referred to something known as genetic fingerprinting, a process discovered and developed at the University of Leicester by Dr Alec Jeffries. On the morning of September 10th, 1984, Dr Jeffries pulled an x-ray film out of the developing tank in a laboratory at the university. He could see patterns in the genetic material which completely discriminated between the three people who'd been involved in the analysis. One was a technician, one was a mother and one was a father. This eureka moment, as he calls it, led to Dr. Jeffries realising that there were variations in DNA which were unique to each individual. I went onto the Leicester Uni website to get an explanation of the genetic fingerprinting process because it goes way over my head. Here's the explanation they provide. Genetic fingerprinting involves the extraction of DNA, using enzymes to cut it into fragments, some of which will contain mini-satellites, separating the fragments according to size and treating the fragments with a radioactive probe which identifies shared motifs and can be captured on x-ray film. Such fingerprints, not to be confused with actual fingerprints, exist in blood, bone, hair follicles, saliva, semen, skin and sweat. Genetic profiling involves testing mini-satellites one at a time, producing a simpler image than genetic fingerprinting. It gives a pattern unique to a particular person and is therefore suitable for forensic cases. Dr. Jeffries is quoted on the website as saying, It does not solve crimes. It establishes whether sample X comes from person Y. It is then up to the court to interpret that in the context of other evidence in a criminal case. That's a crucial point he makes as it relates back to Buckland. Samples from both Linda and Dawn's crime scenes were taken to Dr. Jeffrey's lab, as was a sample of Buckland's DNA. 
None of the samples from the two murders matched Buckland's, however it were the courts that quashed his charge and released him as a free man, not the test itself. A crucial point I've skipped over too is the fact that Linda and Dawn's murders could now officially be linked as common DNA were found in samples from both crime scenes. It pointed to one person having killed both girls. The only problem was that detectives had no idea who the person in question was and it wasn't Buckland. With that bombshell came the reopening of the incident room at Enderbe. A new telephone hotline was created in December, with a whole heap of calls coming in from members of the public who provided an amount of information so vast the detectives struggled to ensure it was all documented. I mentioned last week that a mystery donor offered 15 grand as a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. In the same month this hotline was set up, Two more mystery donors upped that reward to £20,000, around fifty-seven seven grand in today's money. The next big step in the search for justice came on December 18th, when BBC's Crime Watch aired an episode featuring Linda and Dawn's cases. The girls' names were now known throughout the country, rather than just in the areas in and around Leicester, which led to even more calls from viewers of the show. Of those hundreds of calls, only two were classed as unfinished, which means the caller connected with an operator but unexpectedly ended the call mid-conversation. Naturally, detectives focused on those two calls, each of which was made by an unidentified male, with the chain of events being as follows. The first caller claimed he knew the identity of the person he believed to be Linda and Dawn's killer, although he was clearly distressed and ultimately became too petrified to give a name over. He hung up before the operator could press him further. The second caller said he was a young man already on the police's radar. If he was to be believed, the police wanted to speak with him about the case as he was the running man seen dashing across a busy main road, as mentioned in part one. Before hanging up, the caller promised to phone back, but never did. As 1987 loomed, strategies were being implemented by the police regarding mass sampling thousands of men in the areas local to Narbra and Enderby. On January 2nd, an announcement was made that 2,000 plus men were to be sent letters regarding voluntarily coming forward and offering their DNA by way of blood and saliva samples. The age range for the men was 16 to 34, which ties in with the rough age of the suspected perpetrator based on witness testimony. However, the tests weren't as voluntary as the police made out. Anyone who failed to turn up for their test or refused would come under great scrutiny for obvious reasons, and I'm sure it was probably only classed as being voluntary for legal reasons. The tests weren't cheap either. One source claimed each one was set to cost around £300, that's £829 in today's money, meaning in excess of £600,000, £1.6 today, was to be spent on that initial round of testing. One thing that baffled me was the quick turnaround. The letters were sent on January 2nd to men living in the villages of Narbra, Enderbit and Littlethorpe who were born between January 1st 1953 and December 31st 1970. That was on a Friday and the test was set to commence on the 5th the following Monday at two test centres, the Blaby Rural District Council offices in Narbra and Dane Mills School in Enderbe. With 80 men due to be tested on that first day of what was an 8-week testing schedule to be conducted by 12 doctors, 
a legal spanner was quickly thrown in the works by former British medical chemical company Imperial Chemical Industries, known as ICI. They raised a complaint to the Home Office as they claimed to have exclusive world rights to the genetic fingerprinting tests that were due to be carried out on the men of Leicestershire. ICI had no idea the mass testing was going ahead until the police made the announcement on January 2nd, so the chemical giants quickly put the kibosh on it. Thankfully, despite the ongoing battle, the test went ahead as planned, as ICI said they didn't want to interfere with an ongoing murder investigation. By the end of January, the first round of testing had concluded, with over half of the 2,000 men providing DNA samples. By July of that year, over 4,000 men had given samples and almost 2,200 had been cleared. The search had extended overseas to expats at that point, people who'd either lived or worked in the three villages in the previous three years. That month, Europe's first ever purpose-built laboratory was opened in the Oxfordshire town of Abingdon-on-Thames. By August, Dr Jeffries' revolutionary test was used in a criminal court for the first time in history during the trial of a man charged with the sexual assault of a teenage girl. He was later found guilty and handed an eight-year prison sentence, all thanks to genetic fingerprinting. Dr Jeffries went on to be knighted in 1994 for his services to genetics. August 1st, 1987. That day will go down in history as being pivotal in leading to the capture of the person responsible for killing Linda Mann and Don Ashworth. As is common practice in the UK, a group of work colleagues from Hampshire's bakery in Leicester enjoyed a lunchtime drink at the Clarendon pub that Saturday to blow away some of the cobwebs. Discussions no doubt began with the frustrations of each colleague's respective role within the business, but soon enough, the chat turned to a topic outside of the realm of typical work conversation. One of the five workmates was a man called Ian Kelly, and it was he who brought up the fact that another of their colleagues, Colin Pitchfork, who wasn't present, had made him a bizarre offer. Ian was asked to go to one of the two testing centres and take the test while pretending to be Pitchfork. To Ian's surprise, some of his other colleagues had also been asked, with one person being offered 50 quid to do so and another being offered 200. That's £138 and £552 respectively in today's money. Everyone else saw sense and declined Pitchfork's offer, with the exception of Ian. Pitchfork was one of the first men to be asked to provide a DNA sample in January 1987 and was scheduled to visit a test centre on the 22nd of that month, but he called to cancel, insisting that he was too busy to attend. A week-long crusade of pestering and begging his colleagues to take the test for him ensued, with Ian finally being the only person he could persuade to do so. This wasn't just a request made on a whim either. Pitchfork took Ian to a photo booth so that he could insert it into his own passport whilst also teaching him how to do his signature. Pitchfork also offered various personal details about his life and family just in case Ian was questioned further. It was a meticulously thought out plan that ended with Ian taking the rearranged test for Pitchfork on January 29th. The results soon came back and Pitchfork was eliminated as a suspect. To fool his family and colleagues further, Pitchfork pricked his own arm with a sharp object and covered it with a plaster to give the impression that he'd given blood as requested by the police. Such levels of pre-planned deception are, to me, beyond disturbing. 
One of the attendees at the pub that afternoon was Mrs. Jackie Foggin, who pressed Ian for further information once he'd revealed he'd gone ahead with taking the test for Pitchfork. It just didn't sit right with Jackie, and she wanted to know more before the conversation moved away from the topic. One of Jackie's friends was a policeman, so she initially wanted to pick his brain about what she'd heard, but after failing to get in touch with him, she instead opted to phone the hotline and inform the operator about what Ian had said. The police now had the names of two suspects, one of whom could well be the person responsible for both the murders of Linda and Dawn. Jackie's call was made on Friday, September 18th, and within a few hours, officers had Ian Kelly in custody. The following evening at 5.45pm, officers turned up at number 32 Hayburn Close in the Leicestershire village of Littlethorpe. Living there with his wife, Carol, and two sons was the then 27-year-old Pitchfork. Accompanied by five other officers, D.I. Mick Thomas arrested the baker on suspicion of murdering Linda and Dawn. Before taking him away, Pitchfork asked to have a moment in the kitchen with his wife, who asked him if what the officers were accusing him of was true. When he explained that they were, Carol launched towards him in a fit of rage and had to be held back by the officers to prevent Pitchfork from being attacked. The last words Carol heard from her husband were him admitting having killed two teenage girls. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Let's take a look back at Pitchfork's early life and background now before continuing with the story. Born on March 23, 1960, in the Leicestershire village of Newbold Verdon, Pitchfork attended schools in Market Bosworth and Desford, spending his secondary school years at Desford's Bosworth Community College, now known as Bosworth Academy. His time at school appears to have been as regular as any other kid's, he was a bit of a loner though, and preferred to keep to himself rather than join in with any of the cliques that naturally formed during those teenage years. After finishing school in 1976 at the age of 16, he managed to gain an apprenticeship role at Hampshire's Bakery, and to be fair, he did exceptionally well. His colleagues and senior managers described him as an incredibly adept baker, and he thoroughly enjoyed his job. Putting his skills to good use, Pitchfork offered his services to friends and family by baking them wedding cakes and the like for special occasions, which earned him a nice little side income. He undertook some further education at Southfields College, now known as Leicester College after merging with Charles Keane College in 1999, with his tutor describing him as an intelligent and enthusiastic pupil whose work was deemed above average. The day release course was attended by Pitchfork one day a week and took around three years to complete, even with twice weekly evening classes being taken to supplement it. Day release is not to be confused with the term for prisoners allowed to leave custody during the daytime, that's now known as a prison resettlement day. Day release in this context is the term used to describe apprenticeship training, where the apprenticeship undertakes a mandatory 20% off-the-job training day once a week, assuming it's a five-day work week. Pitchfork's mum, Molly, was a local scout group leader, so naturally he joined that group before moving on to join the Glenfield Venture Scouts. Again, nothing stood out about him. He wasn't combative and didn't start fights or cause problems within the group. Everyone he associated with knew him as... A run-of-the-mill guy who was polite, courteous, and never caused bother. He did keep to himself more so than anyone else, granted, but it was never a cause for concern. 
No eyebrows were ever raised, which makes the outcome of this story that much more perplexing. Pitchfork would go on to seemingly become a pillar of the community. He began a volunteer role as a social worker in 1979, helping out the staff at the Dr. Bernardo's children's home in Glenfield. He'd bake cakes for the children and staff, and it was there where he met his future wife, Carol. She was a residential social worker living at the home. When he met Carol, Pitchfork lived at number six Brasscoat Close with Molly, his dad Alwyn, his brother David and his sister Jill. The pair quickly became engaged and two years later in 1981 tied the knot before moving to their own home at Barclay Street just off Narborough Road. Their first child was born in August 1983, three months before Linda Mann was murdered, with their second child being born, I believe, after they moved to 32 Hayburn Close in 1985. As he had been all his life, Pitchfork and his family were described by neighbours as an ordinary British working class family who didn't bother anyone and kept to themselves. Behind closed doors, things were drastically different. Pitchfork had a real Jekyll and Hyde side to his personality that even Carol wasn't aware of. Pitchfork was a sexual deviant who'd been in trouble with the police four times for indecent exposure, something he began doing regularly from as young as 11. It was the discovery of him revealing himself to strangers that eventually forced him out of the scouts. Receiving nothing more than probation orders each time, there was no reason for him to quit his disturbing behaviour. It excited him, he got a kick out of it, and the consequences weren't worth worrying about. Such were the concerns around his behaviour at such a young age that Pitchfork was referred to the Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital for an evaluation. He would later explain to officers after his arrest in 1987, Probation officers and psychiatrists, these people are quite happy if you tell them what they want to hear. I can't believe how easy it is to spin yarns to these people. Deception and manipulation were something he was proficient at from a young age. Pitchfork had come clean to Carol about the four indecent exposure charges, but his nefarious activities didn't stop there. Three separate incidents would come to light at Pitchfork's murder trial that shed light on just how depraved he was and how at-risk young girls were in his presence. On February 13th, 1979, aged 18, Pitchfork grabbed a teenage girl from behind as she walked alone in Kirby Muxlow, Leicestershire, and said, Don't scream or I'll kill you, before indecently assaulting her in a field. Six years later, a 25-year-old Pitchfork indecently assaulted another teenage girl on a railway bridge in South Wigston before attempting to kidnap 17-year-old Elizabeth Knight in June 1987, three months before his arrest for the two murders. Elizabeth was picked up by Pitchfork one evening as she walked home alone. An argument with her boyfriend led to her leaving the gathering with her friends early. As she informed Pitchfork that her home was approaching, the 27-year-old drove straight past it with a sinister smile on his face. In an act of sheer bravery, Elizabeth suddenly grabbed the steering wheel and forced the car off the road. That seemed to snap Pitchfork out of what she described as being a psychotic trance. Dropping Elizabeth home, Pitchfork asked for a goodnight kiss, which she refused, before hastily getting out of the car. In June 1986, a month before Dawn's murder, Carol and Pitchfork separated briefly after the renowned womaniser admitting to having had an affair and gotten his lover pregnant. 
That baby sadly died during childbirth and the brief separation soon ended with the married couple reuniting. To make matters worse, Carol was pregnant at the time, but that didn't stop her husband from repeatedly exposing himself to numerous women. The figure provided by Pitchfork regarding how many women he'd indecently exposed himself to was over a thousand. So, September 19th, 1987. Pitchfork was remanded in custody for an initial 48 hours after his arrest before attending a hearing at Leicester Magistrates Court. No application was made for bail and reporting restrictions were not lifted. He was remanded back to custody after being informed of his charges. On December 2nd, he was charged at Leicester Magistrates Court with the murders of Linda and Dawn, the indecent assaults in 1979 and 1985, as well as the kidnap of Elizabeth Knight in 1987. The only charge Pitchfork pleaded not guilty to was the kidnapping, which was later ordered to be left on file and he was never formally convicted of it. The final charge was one of conspiring to pervert the course of justice regarding having Ian Kelly fill in for him at the test centre in an attempt to bypass the mass screening. Ian would later be convicted of conspiring to pervert the course of justice and received an 18-month jail sentence suspended for two years. On January 22nd, 1988 at Leicester Crown Court, the truth about what had happened to Linda and Dawn came to light. It was also revealed that of the more than 5,000 men who were asked to take the genetic fingerprinting test, only two refused. One of the two had a genuine reason, the other was Pitchfork. With both Linda and Dawn, Pitchfork admitted to having first exposed himself to them before deciding to kill them in case they revealed his identity later down the line. He claimed the murders were not planned, although he was the sole person responsible. I mentioned earlier that Pitchfork's first child was around three months old when Linda Mann was murdered. He was left in a carry cot in Pitchfork's car near the murder scene whilst his dad committed the heinous killing of the 15-year-old. On January 23rd, Pitchfork was handed two life sentences with a minimum term of 30 years for the murders. He was also handed 10 years for the sexual assaults of both Linda and Dawn, 10 years for the two other indecent assaults in 1979 and 1985 and another three years for conspiring to pervert the course of justice. Each sentence was to be served concurrently. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Otten said in his closing statement, The rapes and murders were of a particularly sadistic kind. You are a danger to young women and it will be many years before you are released. If it wasn't for DNA, you might still be at large today and other women would be in danger. Despite being sent to a prison rather than a secure psychiatric hospital, Pitchfork was subjected to various assessments by psychiatrists at Broadmoor. They concluded that he was a psychopath of a sexual type who required therapy for his condition whilst incarcerated. Fast forward 21 years and Pitchfork's 30-year minimum sentence was agreed to be reduced to 28 years due to what has been referred to as his exceptional progress whilst in prison. The families of both Linda and Dawn were outraged at such a decision, but not as outraged as they'd be just 12 years later. Between two rejected parole hearings in 2016 and 2018, Pitchfork was moved to an undisclosed open prison. He was then moved to HMP Layhill, another open prison in Tort with Gloucestershire, in 2018. A hearing in March 2021 led to the parole board miraculously ruling that Pitchfork was essentially fully reformed and classed as been suitable for release. 
that September his dreaded release came, with the parole board arguing that he was subject to around 43 license conditions, 36 more than the seven standard conditions for offenders leaving prison. He was placed on the sex offenders register and was required to live at a designated address. He was to be supervised and had to wear an electronic tag at all times. Taking frequent polygraph tests was also part of his license conditions, as were limits on contact with children. And to the surprise of absolutely nobody, except perhaps the parole board, Pitchfork was recalled to prison that November. Two months elasted after spending the previous 34 years in prison. The reason for him being recalled wasn't due to him committing an offence, as it were, it was more of a precaution due to his concerning behaviour. He is understood to have approached several young women at various points whilst out walking on his own. The young women were also alone. His attitude also reportedly stank and he was supposedly trying to trick the polygraph test so the results were more in his favour. In June 2023, another parole board appeal meeting ended with the decision that Pitchfork, who by then was 63, should be freed. Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice Alex Chalk was far from happy with that decision and made an application to challenge the ruling that July. Dawn's mum Barbara had gotten in touch with him to express her frustration and concerns, calling the parole board's decision to recommend his release diabolical. A fresh hearing was ordered with the outcome being decided just two weeks ago, if you listen to this on the day it's released. Pitchfork was denied parole on December 7th, 2023, although the decision is provisional for 21 days, meaning Pitchfork has three weeks to appeal. By the time you hear this, he may well have, and I'm sure there will be more to this story over the coming months and years. Let's hope for the sake of all young girls that he remains behind bars for the rest of his life. And that concludes this two-part episode covering the murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth. Thanks again, Pofro, T-Bex, Helen Wiley and Jane for requesting that case. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Bored out of my tiny mind at work, left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Listen to a lot of podcasts to get me through long, long days at work, and this has become a fast favourite. I've binged a lot, so now it's a waiting game would 100% recommend to anyone and everyone. Jane left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Found you in my suggested podcast on Amazon Music, and I've been listening every day since. Love how much detail you cram into the episodes while keeping them to an easy listening length. A job well done. Tasha and Mamu left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, My mum and I have listened to your podcast for well over a year now. We flipping love it. You're so easy to listen to and you cover each case with so much detail. We often giggle over how many T's you drop from your words and how you say cheerio at the end. Finally, John Somers, or Somers, apologies John, left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, It is so easy to listen and I think Stuart is a great host with a nice, honest, easygoing style. I'd recommend it greatly. Thank you, Bored, Jane, Tasha and Mamu and John for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. 
Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early access to ad-free episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes as well as my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon exclusive giveaways from time to time. You'll also get some thank you goodies for signing up. I just want to do a quick thank you shout out to my newest patrons, Jill, Andy and Becky Barker, Carla Stewart, Heather McCourt, Jeanine Cordill, Gary Elwin, Emily and EJ. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Someone recently did that and bought me a beer but chose to remain anonymous. Thank you, whoever that was, I really appreciate it. Please email any case suggestions to contact at britishmurders.com or message me via social media. You will get the episode covered and get a shout out for your trouble. And that does it for this second part of the end of season 11 special. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.